Hey everybody, you're listening to Beyond 1894. This is the official podcast of Louisiana Tech University. Joining us today for this episode is Dr. Donna Thomas. Uh, she is the Associate Vice President for Academic Affairs. She is also the NCAA faculty representative here at the university. Dr. Thomas, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Gavin. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, sure thing. So, um, one of the best parts of having guests on as we sort of talk to them about their tech journey, um, what they did before they got here, how they got here, what they've done since they've gotten here. And I think you've had a pretty robust tech journey, would you say? I think so, yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about your your days before tech, you know, the, the how did you get here part. Let's talk about that. So um, I started my family when I was young, so I didn't go to college out of high school. Um, so my husband, Bob, and I had four children. Uh, during the 80s. I was, you know, throughout the 80s, I had children mm -hmm. four times. Um, and uh, I worked off and on between having children, um, did some uh, administrative work, clerical type work, bank teller, mm -hmm. those kinds of things. Um, my husband had sales and marketing jobs, and we moved around quite a bit, you know, and, and so. Um, just, Where are you from originally? I'm originally from Tallulah, Louisiana. Okay. So, um, and um uh, I guess, you know, it, at one point, honestly, um, about the time that our youngest was about to start pre-kindergarten, um, what seemed like a very random occasion, my husband said to me that he thought I was too smart to do the kind of work that I was doing. Um, and I appreciated that, but I didn't have much understanding of what else there was to do out there. And he suggested that I look into going to college in some capacity and, and didn't know in what. I had, out of high school, I think I wanted to be an English teacher. And so I was very interested in that. Uh, looked into that. Um, decided ultimately that I would like to go into dental hygiene. <laughs> so I did. Uh, we moved to Monroe at that time from, uh, we were living in Dale High, where my husband is from. We moved to Monroe, moved our family there and started schools for them. And I started going to ULM in their dental hygiene program. That was at least my declared major. Mm -hmm. But the first course I took was a psychology intro class. Um, and I, the, the bug got me. I, I loved psychology. I had a great professor, Dr. Ed McGuire. Um, who sparked my interest, and I, I think a lot of it probably had to do with my uh, family that I had and the dynamics of having children, their interactions with each other, their their development as human beings. Um, just a lot of the psychology um, resonated with me, you know, and it, it seemed like it started to make things in my life and in their lives make sense. And so... Um, I changed my major to psychology without very much thought. <laughs> um, although I was 30 years old, I was sure. old enough to give thought to things, but I didn't. <laughs> and so um, so I changed my major to psychology and, and never looked back. Um, and I got my bachelor's degree at ULM in three years. Um, I graduated with a 4.0 average, nice. which was not nice. very common at that time. <laughs> you know, proud to say that because I had four children right. and a husband right. and dogs and life oh, and yeah. all that. Um, so because I was a good student, I had uh, really great professors there who encouraged me to go to graduate school. Um, I didn't get a lot of career advice about what to do with a psychology degree. So I did go to graduate school, again, with not a lot of thought for what I would do after. 
Um, so I got my gra- uh, master's degree at ULM in uh, experimental psychology um, with an emphasis on psychometrics. Um, so explain that a little bit. <laughs> How does that differ from like this? It sounds very specific. So. Yeah. Well, so experimental psychology is is really focused on if you think about uh, we don't have this here at Tech, but if you think about working like in a rat lab where you have rats in a Skinner box who you teach to do things Mm -hmm. and you learn to understand uh, operational conditioning, classical conditioning, you know, how do we teach people to do things? And, you know, surprisingly, we can teach rats to do lots of things, you know, and what their responses are, how we reinforce those responses, that kind of thing. Of course, it generalizes and translates to humans. And so that's the true study, you know, that we get into ultimately. Um, And then psychometrics is really about uh, assessment and measurement. And so if you think about working with humans, you know, how do we measure various traits? How do we observe human behavior? How do we compare humans to each other? Um, Yeah, so got it. That's it. Um, So that was a a pretty quick master's program. I think I finished that in about nine months. Um, I was a um, graduate assistant, a teaching assistant while I was in that program, and I taught the quantitative methods lab um there and so that was fun for me i enjoyed that that teaching experience you know that slight exposure to teaching um and then someone suggested to me that i apply for a phd program and were you at any point just like man all this schooling up you know because you originally <laughs> like you said before your bachelor's you know you hadn't really thought about it and now you're like knocking on the door of a doctorate were well, you just caught up in it or what you know i was ca- i was definitely caught up in it i was i was incredibly naive to be the age that i was but i think that served me well in a way because i did believe in myself i had confidence in my abilities and my academic performance was showing me that you know i could do this um but i just I mean, I yes, the I guess the the gravity of that, the extent of that, wasn't totally lost on me. Mm-hmm. But I was just sort of in just keep going mode, like just keep going, and so I kept going. And um, I applied to uh, Louisiana Tech. There was a counseling psychology PhD program here that was very new at that time. I think I was in the third cohort of students. Um, it was not an accredited program at the time and because you have to have graduates to be accredited. Um, so I applied for the program. Um, really, I mean, with now, I look back and I knew so little about what they were expecting. And, and you know, just I, I had good grades. I thought that was all that I needed, <laughs> were, you know, were good grades. And um, because... I'd done so well and been encouraged, you know, and I had very little research background. I had no clinical background. Um, I just had good grades, you know. And so I applied for the program, and uh, I received a letter that I was put on a wait list, so I wasn't accepted, and that was really the first setback that I'd had academically. You'd been, I mean, just chugging along at that point, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just, just speeding and, yeah. through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, speeding through it, you know. And, and so um, I, that was, I don't want to say devastating. It was really surprising to me. I just didn't expect it. And But I had I had no idea of the the depth of those programs that you're, you know, you're accepting candidates from nationally and internationally. And so, you know, there's a lot of competition. And, and I just thought, you know, I would get in. 
And so I didn't, and that was really surprising to me, um, but it's not now. And so I think that was in maybe February or March of the year I was finishing my master's, and it would start in the fall. And at some point in that summer of 1990, when was that? I think it was 98, I'm not sure. Um I received a notice that uh, they would like to talk to me about being in the program. And I, I still was sort of viewing that as like a consolation prize, like, a you know, like, oh, I didn't yeah. get in on the first round. You know, I just had no idea how competitive that process was. And I didn't know that it's very common to be waitlisted. It's not a reflection of right. your academic ability, you know, and it's not anything to be ashamed of, but I, I didn't know that at the time. So uh, I came over to Tech and uh, met with uh, some professors, department head, and um, ultimately they accepted me into that program and I started a PhD program here. So that was that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a, a, a very long, a very difficult uh, program. Obviously it's five years at a minimum. Um, I finished my classes, and then I was ABD, all but dissertation, for a couple of years because my husband and I had started a business, which is not a great idea when you're trying to write a dissertation. (laughs) But again, we learn so much over time, you know. And, you know, the beauty of that is I think that I have a lot of advice I can give to people, you know, whether it's don't get discouraged about things, don't expect this, do expect that, you know, it's okay to have this or that. Um, Don't start a business when you're writing a dissertation, you know, but it all worked out in the end. And Mm -hmm. so in uh, 2005, I finished my uh, PhD, graduated, and one of the faculty members in the Department of Psychology and Behavioral Sciences here encouraged me to apply for a faculty position. So I did, because I had learned during my doctoral program that I love to teach. Um, We did that. That was how we were supported as graduate assistants when I was a student, uh, making a whopping $10,000 a year. Sure. Uh, And so, which, you know, I took it, and that was fine. Um, Because I had some prior teaching experience um, during my master's program, they allowed me to teach an advanced course, statistics, and so uh, I taught that for the years that I was here taking classes, and I really, really enjoyed that work. I really enjoyed teaching statistics because it was a course that students typically are not excited about. It, they are afraid. Um, there's math phobia, you know, and there's, there's, they just go into it with a sense of dread and a sense of knowing that this won't work out. So um, I enjoyed trying to teach it in a way that related to them, that they could do it, you know, and trying to use real-world examples that they could apply. And, you know, I think I was good at it. So I really enjoyed that experience. Um, At that time, when I was a teaching assistant, we would, the department would offer one section of statistics every quarter, and it would have 80 people in it. And it was was just huge. It was overwhelming. but it was a great experience, and uh, the, the thing I remember most about that was teaching in winter quarter. For some reason, the course was scheduled at night. Winter quarter's a doozy anyway. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. And so it was a night class, 5.30 to 9.15 statistics. So you start around December 1st. You go until around the 20th or so, and then everybody's gone for a couple of weeks. You come back early in January, and you start over. <laughs> so... Um, 
Yeah, and meeting once a week, mm-hmm. you know, with people who are sleepy and mostly don't want to be there. Um, so, you know, for some reason that appealed to me, and I decided <laughs> that that teaching was the way I wanted to go, so I applied for a faculty position here. Um, I guess maybe the second time I was disappointed uh, academically. I was hired, but I was hired in a one-year position, not a tenure-track position, you know, which, again, perfectly fine. You know, I just... I didn't know. And Mm -hmm. so um, I I sort of had a little chip on my shoulder, I think, about that. Um, And I think it's turned out okay because I started in the fall of 2005. And during that first year, I was actually asked to be a coordinator of the doctoral program from which I'd graduated. And um, it it was an honor. I am uh, proud that I was asked to do that, and I think I did a very good job of it. It is a lot of work, and you know, and a very good friend of mine was my department head, so I can say this in jest that I think, in a way, you know, he saw this rube who didn't know any better. <laughs> I thought it was an honor. It was a tremendous amount of responsibility and work, but it was incredibly rewarding. You know, I had the experience of having been in that program of seeing things that I would change if I were ever in charge. And then suddenly I was in charge and I found out it's not that easy. You know, it's, it's, it's not from a faculty perspective. It's not the way it looks from a student perspective. Right. But I think that that experience really helped me in that role because, you know, there, there were things that I understood that someone who'd not gone through the program would not understand. So I think that was helpful. Um, yeah, and then I went on, you know, and, and stayed in that role for a while. I, uh, of course, after in my sixth year, you know, you apply for a tenure promotion, all that. I did that um, and was successful there. Um, took that program to uh, an accredited status, you know, and, and it's remained accredited, and we're all very proud of that. That takes lots of people and lots of work. Um, and then in uh, 2012, uh, the department chair who'd hired me decided to step down, and um, I was encouraged to apply for that role, and so I did. And I was named interim department chair and ultimately became department chair there and worked in that role in psychology and behavioral sciences from 2012 until January of 22. So January of 22, you know, there was a a, a move there. So talk about the role you're in now and sort of how it differs from what you'd been doing for so long before. Okay. So um, I guess for a few months leading up to that, um, I'd been talking with Dr. Geis and Dr. McConathy about some ideas I had about the university, about um, I felt like having been a department head for 10 years, I had a pretty good idea of how things work on campus and, and how things work work together, the collaborations that occur, so, you know, all the strengths of the university that I was aware of, but areas that I thought we could, could work on and, and make some changes. Um, and I often referred to myself to them as, as sort of the boots on the ground person, you know, like I'm, I'm the person, you know, and not that I didn't see them as having an ivory tower mentality or right. something like that, like they aren't aware of what goes on, but, you know, I, I just felt like I had a good grasp of how things worked at the level of department head and departments and within a college. And so we talked about that and talked about how I thought I could make a difference there. Um, 
And ultimately, it led to, um, they asked me to serve in the role of Associate Vice President for Academic Affairs. And so I started that um, about a year and a couple of months ago. And it is, yeah, it is very different. Um, So because it's so different, was that a switch that, I mean, it sounds like you were a little proactive in, in switching into that role, but was it hard to sort of leave behind the type of role that you'd known for so long? Yes, it was. Um, I mean, I was excited to leave it behind. I I was excited to do something new, and I was excited for the department to have someone new in that role. Um, There were some things going on in the department, some transitions of programs that needed some continued oversight. So I had, we'll call it an advantage of still having a foot sort of in each camp. Um, as far as uh, trying to, to see through a program that was being closed out, you know, and overseeing that for a while. So I, I got to hold on to some of those relationships, you know, I mean, for a while while I was doing that transition. Um, so that was nice. But it I did learn, I mean, as we, as we do, you know, you think when you're in one role that you know so much about another role and, and what goes on at the university level versus the department level or a college level. Um, but very quickly, I, I learned so much and learned that I had so much more to learn about that. Um, and that's been really eye-opening and very, very rewarding, you know, and that's, that's the kind of thing that as I'm working now with all of the academic areas on campus, all of the colleges and departments, uh, I'm, I'm trying to share that experience with them. Um, not that they're so interested in me and what I think, but just how eye-opening it's been to see things from a different level and across all of those levels and understanding some of how it all fits together and that change is possible and change is necessary, but it's not as easy as it appears a lot of times. Yeah, we've been talking about your roles this whole time, and we mentioned up top that um, you're also the NCAA uh, faculty athletics representative. How did that happen? Because you've been doing that for a while. I have. I started that, I I believe, in 2014. Um, How did it happen? Well, Uh, Dr. James Liberatus was the NCAA faculty athletics representative for many, I think, 18 years maybe prior to that, and he retired, um, also was chair of the Athletics Council, and uh, his retirement was announced, um, I guess, early in 2014, I think, and um, I had been serving on the Athletics Council since 2007 as a member of the council. And the minute I saw the email that he was planning to retire, I mean, I hadn't heard anything about that. And I was on a trip uh, to Washington, D.C. I was at a conference, and uh, my husband was there, and I said to him, I really would like to be chair of the Athletics Council and the faculty athletics rep. And, you know, sort of a, okay, what are you going to do about that, you know? And um, pretty uncharacteristic of me at that time, uh, I just sat down and wrote an email to Dr. Geis and told him that I was interested in that um, and that I'd like to learn more about it and talk about, you know, what I thought I could do in the role. Um, as with most things, I didn't know as much about the role as I thought I did at the time. But I thought, you know, what I brought to it was 
I was, of course, a faculty member. Um, I was I was serving as an administrator in the department chair role. I had uh, my husband was a student athlete at Louisiana Tech. My two sons had been student athletes at Louisiana Tech. I had a daughter who was working in athletics at the time, so I was a parent of student athletes. You know, so I thought I had. Uh, lots of perspectives that from which I could draw, you know, in those roles and, and just be able to look at things from different vantage points and offer that experience. So that was sort of what I told him. And, and you know, he's he's always open to hearing from people and just wanting to, to you know, have you share your ideas. And yeah. so um, some point later, um, he invited me to come visit with him about it. We talked about it, and I, you know, I don't remember the exact process, but ultimately, he decided that uh, you know that he would appoint me in that role because the faculty athletics rep is an appointed role at Louisiana Tech. Um, we had some discussions about uh, whether or not the faculty athletics rep and the athletics council chair should be the same person as they had been for years or should we separate out those roles and have two different roles was the thought just that gives two different perspectives and two different like what was the thought process there is it maybe just a change yeah i mean you know honestly i didn't know a lot about the ncaa faculty athletics representative role i knew more about the council because i served on the council you know and we met regularly and talked about policy and talked about procedures and made recommendations and things like that Um, but what i learned during that period from dr liberatus was that the athletics rep the faculty athletics rep role is so much more active and involved in athletics on a daily basis and you know than the athletics council was um you know signing eligibility lists uh, going to ncaa meetings um you know i mean the I guess it would be helpful if I described in general what that role is, sure, the NCAA yeah. faculty athletics role, because I really didn't know myself, even though here I was volunteering for it. Um, so NCAA faculty athletics representative is a position that the NCAA requires of uh, institutions. It is a person who has you know faculty status on the campus. They are, I would say, both a representative to the faculty of the institution and of athletics, so sort of a liaison between those two units. Right, because those are all, all often, you know, sort of at least perceptually separated yes. areas of most campuses. You've yeah. got your academics and you've got your athletics, even yeah. though there's tons of crossover. Right. So I guess having a point person for that sort of right makes sense. Right. And so the the two areas that the NCAA defines as, as – uh, being overseen by the we say far and you know uh, faculty athletics rep um, are student athlete well-being and academic integrity well i mean well-being is pretty broad right you know i mean that's anything from you know are are they being fed well do they <laughs> did they get good accommodations when they're on the road mm-hmm. you know are they being treated right by their coaches those kinds of things um, mental health is a big one which yeah. obviously that's my area you know um, and then academic integrity is is not, I mean, it may involve assisting a student athlete or assisting the academic unit that's in athletics with understanding sort of the academic side of campus and how things work here. But it also involves upholding that academic integrity and those standards. So it's, I'm not, 
I think some people view me in that role as like, oh, she's sort of an agent of the student athletes, you know, and so if they're appealing a grade, she's going to help them with that. Or if they're, you know, having trouble in their class, she's going to go talk to professors and talk to them about what they need to do. And, and it's not that. I mean, I'm a representative from the faculty to athletics. So I can help athletics understand how things work on the academic side. Um, and, and I can, to some extent, advise student athletes how to go about processes. But not in any way different from what I would do with any other student, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it really is about upholding academic integrity and because there's a lot in, you know, recent history that the NCAA has to look at as far as, and that we have to consider with student athletes as far as their eligibility to compete, you know, their progress toward their degree. You know, the days are gone where you can just take classes and, just keep taking classes and keep yeah. taking classes. You know, you have to take classes that count toward your degree. You have to make certain grades. You ha- you know, and so there's a lot there. So Yeah, and it's it sounds tricky, too, because, um, you know, we talked about sort of those two separate areas where you have expectations placed on you from both of those, you know, athletics and academics. Yeah, it's, it's a balancing act a little bit. <laughs> it is. Um Maybe a little more so in the role that I have now, because now, you know, I'm associate vice president for academic affairs for the university. So, I mean, I think you could look at it two ways. Dr. Geis and I both discussed together, you know, when I was about to take this role, was it still appropriate for me to be the faculty athletics rep, you know, when I'm going to be representing academics for the entire institution? Um, And we did some research and found that there are a number of other FARs around the country who are in roles like mine. Obviously, if there were ever any conflict, I would recuse myself from that. You know, so far there hasn't been. But I think mainly we were interested in the appearance of it and making sure that there wasn't a misunderstanding, you know, of, oh, now someone Conflict of interest. Yeah, yeah. right. You know, on this campus, we talk a lot about people who are, quote, in the tower, meaning Wiley Tower. And so now if you're going to be a person in the tower, is that going to appear to put more pressure on professors or administrators on campus? Are they feeling like, wait a minute, what role is she in? You know, that kind of thing. Um, and I don't think that's been a problem, you know, and I, and I, I certainly, if, if there is, I want to address that, you know, and, and be sure that I handle that carefully. Um, because, I mean, I am a representative of academics on this campus, but I'm also a representative in athletics. And so I, I think those two things, first of all, student athletes are students, right? You know. Student athlete, <laughs> yes, in the yes. name, yeah, it's there yeah. first. So um, I just want to be careful that there's no appearance of of wrongdoing there or, or overstepping or anything like that. So, um, but yeah, it <clears throat> it's a very rewarding role. I get to work with student athletes. You know, uh, they will come to me when they have concerns about how things are going during their athletic journey. Um, you know, not things like. I think I should be starting second base and I'm not, right, right. <laughs> you know, I'm not the X's and O's person right. for the football team or anything, <laughs> but, 
um, you know, I mean, if, if they, they think they're not being treated well, they think they're not being treated fairly, you know, if they have concerns about a teammate and, and mental health or, or anything like that that has to do with their academic integrity, their uh, their well-being, they can talk to me about that. I'm a person who is outside of athletics, but I understand athletics. So, I report to Dr. Geis. I don't report to athletics. And so that conflict is removed. Right. You know, because they don't, I'm not going to go talk to their coach right. about what they tell me. I'm not going to go talk to the AD about what they tell me. Um, so they have that kind of assurance. And I think also my background in as being a psychologist, I have to understand things about confidentiality mm-hmm. and, you know, conflicts of interest. And so that's been good. Um, you know, and, and, you know, they might come to me and say, you know, they don't like the, the way their travel arrangements are made or they don't think they're fair or think, you know, I don't think we've really had this issue, but I mean, it could be gender equity or, mm-hmm. or such things, you know. And so I'm a person that they can confide in who's outside of athletics, but who has influence in athletics and can, can help them with those kinds of things. So. It sounds like a pivotal role. So it's a lot good on you for being in it for so long. <laughs> and, and, you know, like you said, sort of deciding, to stick with it when your role changed. Yeah, I think it's um, like a lot of roles in higher education. I mean, I almost think you have to be in it for a while to really understand what the role is and how to navigate it. It's a little different on every campus. So I went to uh, Indianapolis to the NCAA campus when I first got in this role and did kind of a so what is an FAR boot camp thing, Mm -hmm. they called it. and it was really overwhelming because you do find out that it's done differently on every campus. But there are so many things. It's like a menu of choices that you could do. Um, and you feel sort of the responsibility to do all of them, which is not possible. Right. So um, over time, you learn, you know, where you fit, where your campus wants you to fit. Where, Like I said, obviously, I serve under Dr. Geis, so what role does he want me to play? But, um, you know, I, I get called into pretty much anything that has to do with student-athlete well-being, which is pretty much anything that has to do with student-athletes yeah. and anything to do with academic integrity. So I'm in a lot of conversations, you know. Um, I, I, you know, am, am fortunate to get to go to uh, Conference USA meetings and NCAA meetings and weigh in on legislation and that sort of thing. Um, and so it's, you know, a lot like the academic role where it, it really takes a lot of time to figure out how all of those things fit together and, and to figure out your place in them. Yeah. And you also mentioned, um, you know, you mentioned obviously your psychology background playing a factor, but you, and then you said every campus does it differently. Well, the faculty athletics rep at every other campus is doesn't is not a psychologist you know so Correct. they're going to have a different approach to the role yeah. than you might and they're going to have yeah. different strengths in that role too so. yeah that's very true and and that's that makes it really fun when uh the FARs from Conference USA get together at least twice a year in person and multiple times on Zoom um and so you know you have people from you know they might be from geography accounting you know kinesiology I mean all you know all kinds of backgrounds and so but it really makes it a rich conversation because you hear perspectives that you don't have and so you think oh I never looked at it that way you know and so it's it's really it's it's a really nice experience and I think it 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 lends itself to to really shaping 
the academic and the well-being side of athletics and for student athletes, you know, so it's, it's a lot of fun. Well, uh, it sounds interesting and it sounds complex and I appreciate you sort of letting us into that window sure. uh, and explaining that. Um, one last thing I want to talk about with you before we let you go um, is tech online. Because mm-hmm. um, that's sort of been recently something that's come under your wing, you know. Um, talk a little bit a little bit about what it is and sort of the goal of it, the function of it. Okay. So so tech online is is really sort of a name, a platform that we've given to at the moment, a list, a, a group of online programs that already existed on campus. We're just sort of putting them together in a package and uh, making sure that we have the infrastructure and support for those online students that is necessary. It's, you know, students who are taking 100% online programs, uh, they're usually a little older. They come from a different demographic. They may have families. They might have full-time jobs. Not that I mean, many of our students have that in our right. traditional programs too. But there's a level of support that they need. You know, there are they need processes to be smooth and quick and nimble. Simplified. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, you know, there's research that says you know if someone has to click more than two times to get to something, mm-hmm. you can for, you've lost them. Mm-hmm. You know, you can forget it. Um, and so. Um, this was was bringing those programs together again the programs already existed right but providing that support and infrastructure in everything from recruiting students for those programs to admitting them to getting them registered uh, advised enrolled and then what support services can the campus provide for them obviously it's different mm-hmm. i mean you know Sure, you can go to the Lambright as an online student, but if you live in Alaska, that's not going to be something you'll do very often. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, so so being sure that we support those students and, and, and just provide what they need to be successful. So our goal is to grow, obviously. Enrollment is critical. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the way funding in higher education has changed in in the last, you know, 15, 20 years in Louisiana in particular. Um, Enrollment is, this is our biggest source of of revenue. And so we're also at a time post-pandemic, we have fewer people graduating from high school, fewer people going to college, Mm -hmm. you know, and so we want to broaden our base. We want, you know, more students, but not just more students. We want more programs. We want to have more opportunities for people, opportunities for degree programs that are attractive, that are going to help people get the jobs that they're looking for. Um, not all degree programs. There might be credentials or certificates, those kinds of things, mm-hmm. um, because not everybody you know, needs a degree to do what they want to do. But we're trying to provide more opportunities for people to take advantage of uh, that same Louisiana Tech family and the feel mm-hmm. and the great education, the great programs that we provide in person and do it online. So uh, we're building that infrastructure now. It's up and running. Um, but we also realize, you know, that, that before we add lots of new programs, we want to be sure that we have things running smoothly. And so we're, that's sort of the phase we're in. And we have our academic areas working uh, either collaboratively across units or within their own units to create new degree programs, new certificates, new credentials, uh, a lot of interdisciplinary work so that we have new offerings in the future for people. Um, it's a, The price point is um, 
different than our traditional programs. There's a flat rate tuition for undergraduate programs and graduate programs, and so no fees. It's you know, undergrad is four hundred dollars per credit hour. Graduate courses are four seventy or graduate programs four seventy five per credit hour. Um, Again, simplified, and that's, that's it. it. Yeah, it's simplified. You know, so and that's the that's the goal. Mm-hmm. That's that's what we're wanting to put out there. You know, so that it's easy to understand. You know. You take a three-hour class, you're going to pay $1,200 <laughs> every time. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, that's the direction that we're moving. You know, we, we want to be sure we've been very intentional about not marketing those programs to our traditional student base. You know, we're, we're not trying to take anyone off campus. We don't. Right. We want this program to appeal to the people who need it, mm-hmm. and we want it to be good for the people who need it, but we're not changing Louisiana Tech. You know, we're, we're still the same Louisiana Tech that we've always been, and, and we don't want to lose the feel and the family that we have on campus and those traditions. We just want to extend those to people who didn't have the opportunity to take advantage of them before now. Well, um, we are the Louisiana Tech we've always been, and you've been a part of Louisiana Tech for a while. Um, so I appreciate you coming on the podcast today and talking about your journey and your role and sort of where things are going from here. Um, thank you, Dr. Thomas, for being a part of this. Thank you, Gavin. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Beyond 1894. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about this episode, check out our show notes. Beyond 1894 is produced by Louisiana Tech University's Office of University Communications.